going to look this morning at Romans 6, uh, and we're just going to look at verses 1 through 11 as we come to a cursory consideration of definitive sanctification. And before I read this, let me pray for us, and then we'll look at this together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord's day. We thank you that you give us a day that we can quiet our souls, that we can sit at the feet of Jesus, a day in which you feed us with uh, the meat and the milk of your word. We pray that you would feed us this morning. We pray that you would instruct us. We pray that you would increase our faith. We pray that you would give us a greater understanding of the gospel. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would fix our eyes on you and help us to run with endurance the race set before us. We ask that you would make us to know not just the word of the gospel, but the power in our souls. We pray that you would make us the beneficiaries of all of your saving grace. We pray that we would see that there is yet more fullness in you and there is more that we need from you. We pray that you would shepherd us. We pray that you would bless every part of our day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 6, beginning in verse 1, and Paul is transitioning here from the section on justification that really runs from the beginning of the book, but especially from chapters 3 through 5. And now as he transitions, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, this section is introduced by a question that the Apostle Paul is dealing with. If, if you look back at uh, chapter 5, verse 21, if it's true that where sin abounded, grace does abound all the more, verse 20 and 21. If it's true that where the enormity of my unrighteousness has been superabounded by the grace of God in justification, if that's true, then the inevitable conclusion might be it doesn't matter if I go on sinning or not because where sin abounded, grace abounds much more. God's grace is so much greater than all my sin as we, we sing. And, and that's true. God's grace is so much greater. And it's true that you cannot out-sin the grace of God if you're a recipient of the grace of God and you've been justified by Jesus Christ. But Paul taking up that uh, fallacious argument that therefore the conclusion would be we can go on sinning now says in, in chapter 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And he uses 
that little phrase, sometimes it's translated, God forbid. It's, it's the strongest possible negative. He says, by no means. And that, that really doesn't carry the strength of it. Um, how can we? He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul is going to introduce us to that section on sanctification in, in Romans. It's going to run from chapter six to chapter eight. And every one of those chapters is important. Um, the church has often stumbled in focusing on one or another one of these chapters while neglecting one of the other ones. So, for instance, many have rushed to chapter eight. If you, by the spirit, put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. And, and all of those emphases on what we call progressive sanctification while neglecting what we're going to talk about here this morning in chapter six or downplaying uh, chapter seven, which is indwelling sin. Chapter six, he's going to talk about what we call definitive sanctification. Chapter seven, he's going to talk about indwelling sin, that continual irreconcilable warfare, not doing the things that we want to do and doing the things we don't want to do. And then chapter eight with the climax of but God has given us the spirit to enable us more and more to put sin to death. And we need every one of those pieces and we need to see how they're connected. And it seems to me that what Paul does here is very important. He, he doesn't arbitrarily take this first step. Um, you, you could say he couldn't have just jumped from justification to progressive sanctification without going here first. Now, <clears throat> What Paul does is he introduces the subject of union with Christ. And he says, when Jesus died, something happened to you if you're a believer in time and space. And you say, look, I didn't exist. Well, you existed in the uh, in the eternal plan of God. And Jesus died for real people in time and space. So that in redemptive history, when the historical Christ died, he died in the place of historical people, you and me, so that what he did on the cross was really and truly um, in union with those for whom he was doing it. I think I might have said this to you all. John Gerstner used to say um, the old uh, Negro spiritual asked the question, were you there when they crucified my Lord? And, and Gerstner used to say, you bet you were there. You were nailed to the tree with him. That's that's the reality of union with Christ. If if you're really and truly united to Jesus, you were united to him. You were chosen in him before the foundations of the world. So there was an eternal union. The father said, I'm going to choose my people in my son. I'm going to send the son. The son comes into the world. The son goes to the cross, and as he's hanging on the cross, he's there hanging on the cross for real people. And Calvin always spoke about Jesus' death as being in our person. It's actually the strongest possible way of saying it. Jesus died in my person as if it was me because all of my real sin was put on him and all of your real sin was put on him. And so Paul is introducing that subject in Romans 6. He is explaining the significance of union with Christ. And as he does so, he says some really significant things that are going to introduce us to the life of sanctification and how that works. Notice verse 6. We know, he says, that our old self was crucified with him. Sometimes 
people will mistakenly say things like, we need to be crucified with Christ. Um, one, one place in our Westminster standards, I, would, I wish I could change the language, um, it says, and I hope Brian's not upset about this, but, but it says um, that in sanctification we are to die more and more to sin. But the language of the Bible is you died. It doesn't say we're to die more and more. We're to put sin to death more and more. But union with Christ teaches that you died at one definitive moment. Your old self was crucified. Paul says this in Galatians, too. He says, you were crucified. I, he says, I've been crucified. I have been crucified. Not I am being crucified. Not I need to be. But it's already happened because Jesus died. I have been crucified with him. And Paul says the old self was crucified in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Now, notice this. He says, for one who has died has been set free from sin. This is where definitive sanctification is going to come to the forefront. So there is a a liberation that occurs. The one who's died has been set free from sin. What does he mean? Well, he means from the power and dominion of sin. Now, justification deals with the guilt of sin. So I am guilty before God, and I need someone to take the punishment for that guilt, and I need somehow to get a right standing before God. It's a legal transaction. My The guilt of my sin to Jesus, his righteousness to me, he takes the wrath. I get the righteousness. I get justified in the courtroom of God. I am vindicated and cleared Forever righteous before God, as the Hadleberg Catechism says, as if I never sinned, because the Father sees the Son. But that deals with the guilt of sin. But here Paul's speaking about the dominion and power of sin. And he's saying Jesus did something on the cross to deal with that too. Notice, he says, verse 7, the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. You have to follow me here. Death no longer has dominion over him. So he died to the power of death. Can never die again. Death is the consequence of what? Sin. So the dominion of death is inexorably related to the dominion of sin. And here Paul's going to take another step. He's going to say Jesus died to the dominion of death. Man, that's good news because we're going to die. That's really good news. Because death is the last great enemy. It's the wages of sin. And notice this. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. There in verse 10... There's a little phrase, the death he died, he died to sin. And I think we're meant to read that as he died to the power and dominion of sin. So that what happens is the sinless son of God puts himself under the dominion of sin and death and breaks the power and dominion of sin and death in the place of those for whom he's dying. Um, That's awesome. That's awesome. What happened at the cross is Jesus put himself under the dominion of sin and death and broke the bonds to set us free. Um, 
I want to read this to you. John Murray, he was a professor at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, and he was the one that really articulated the doctrine of definitive sanctification here. And in one place he says, It is by virtue of our having died with Christ and are being raised with him in his resurrection from the dead that the decisive breach with sin in its power, control, and defilement have been wrought. Christ in his death and resurrection broke the power of sin, triumphed over the God of this world, the prince of darkness, executed judgment upon this world and its ruler, and by that victory delivers all those who were united to him from the power of darkness and translated them into his own kingdom. So intimate is the union between Christ and his people that they were partakers with him in all these triumphal achievements. Listen to that again, because that respects you if you're a Christian. So intimate is the union between Christ and his people that they, you, were partakers with him in all those triumphal achievements and therefore died to sin, rose with Christ in the power of his resurrection. Now, this is so enormous for the life of the Christian, and yet I think it's something that we often Fail to get. And so notice verse 11. And I like the way um, the New King James reads a little bit better than the ESV here. Uh, The ESV says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The the New King James says, um, therefore, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Reckon yourselves. So preach to yourself the truth that the apostle is giving us in this passage so that whenever I feel enslaved to sin, I can say, I am dead to sin. I am dead to this sin. I'm dead to the power of this sin. Therefore, I am alive to God and I want to live as a new creature now because I've been liberated. I don't want to bring myself back into bondage, which is what we do so often. And there in verse 11, you have a a vital aspect of preaching the gospel to yourself with regard to definitive sanctification. Now, this fuels progressive sanctification. This stands at the head. The radical breach that happens at the cross, the power of sin being broken, that then enables us to grow in holiness. Um, Some people have mistakenly looked at Romans 6 and they have uh, fallen into a sort of Wesleyan perfectionism. And they've said, this is teaching that we can attain to sinlessness. Well, no, that's why we have Romans 7. Romans 7 says, no, the reality is there's still struggle. We still do things we don't want to do. And, and in this life, the Heidelberg Catechism says, the godliest you make, but the least advancement in obedience to God's law as uh, they ought to. Um, nevertheless, this is vital. Now, there is something that lies behind what Paul says here in the life and teaching of Jesus that is even more foundational, if I can say that, or is equally foundational to what he teaches here, and that is positional sanctification in Jesus. Now, you have to listen carefully. Sanctification, we define as as an act of God whereby um, we are made more and more into the likeness of Christ, and we die more and more to sin, as our shorter catechism says, However we want to frame that, that's the way we tend to define sanctification. 
And yet Jesus said, therefore, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. What did Jesus mean? John 17. Here's the one. The Bible says he was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. Jesus himself said um, the one who uh, speaks the words of him who sent him is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. Uh, The writer to Hebrews says that uh, we have a great high priest who was tempted in all points, even as we are yet without sin. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Pilate said this man's done nothing wrong. The centurion said certainly this was a righteous man. Herod's wife said have nothing to do with that just man. Even his enemies knew he was sinless. In some measure. The thief on the cross said we deserve to be here but this man's done nothing wrong. He was sinless, perfectly sinless for us. Um, So what does he mean when he says, I sanctify myself that they may also be sanctified in the truth? Um, You'll remember in Luke's gospel, chapter two, that we are told Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Twice in Luke two, it says that Jesus grew. Well, That's confused people because I thought Jesus was the same yesterday, today, and forever. Well, he is. And in his humanity, he underwent uh, growth and development and maturation. And what that means is that seven-year-old Jesus was uh, growing perfectly into full capacity of a seven-year-old, morally, physically, and spiritually. He um, He wasn't like Doogie Howser. I don't know if you remember that show. I'm, I'm getting old now where where, you know, he's like a seven year old protege doing nuclear physics. Uh, I can't even talk. I can't even say that. So so <laughs> Jesus wasn't doing that at seven. He was obeying his mother and his adopted father. He was um, obeying the law of God perfectly. He was going up to the temple and worshiping. We find him at 12 in the temple. One of the interesting things about Jesus, by the way, we know nothing about him from birth until he's 12 and then almost nothing from 12 till he's 30. And he starts his ministry, huge gaps. And he wasn't making clay pigeons like some of the apocryphal literature and then turning, you know, making them fly. His first miracle was in Cana. We're told that in the Bible. He wasn't doing miracles as a little boy, magically cleaning the room. With the snap of his fingers, he was growing and developing. And and but we do know one thing we know. I know something Jesus was doing every year from birth till he was 12, from 12 till he was 30. He was going to the temple and he was worshiping according to his humanity. And he was learning the scriptures. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Jesus had to learn the scriptures. Um, That's what Luke means when he says he was growing in wisdom and favor in the sight of God and man. And he's in the temple and he's asking questions and he's answering their questions because he knows the scripture better than them because he's sinlessly listening to his father as he grows, right? Jesus didn't know everything in his humanity, right? He says he didn't know the day or the time when the son was returning in his humanity, In his deity, he knows everything, but he laid that aside willingly, what he had access to. And in his humanity, 
he had to subject himself to being a perfect covenant member of the church of God. He was circumcised, right? He took the bloody sign that said he needed cleansing when he needed no cleansing as our representative. He would be baptized, which was a mark of needing repentance. He needed no repentance. But as our representative, he underwent all the commands of God. Um, Even during his public ministry, I think when he heals the leper and then says, go show yourself to the priest as a testimony to Moses, I I think he's keeping the law. I think he's acknowledging this is what God had commanded in the Old Covenant. Um, Why does Jesus have to do all that? I mean, this is the eternal son. This is God. This is God. Um, He is sanctifying himself as our representative so that he can be the source of sanctification for us. Where does any practical holiness come from if I'm going to have any in this life? It comes by virtue of union with Jesus, right? The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31, of him, of God the Father, you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom, that is righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption of him, of God the Father, you are in Christ Jesus, who's become for us. He's become for us wisdom from God, that is righteousness, sanctification, redemption. He's the source. He's the source. It's all in him. Remember what Jesus says in John 15, 5. Without me, you can do a little bit. No. A couple people picking up. <laughs> Without me, you can do nothing. He's the source. He said, for this reason, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Now, where is Jesus ultimately sanctified? He's sanctified on the cross. Now, you have to listen carefully. When Jesus goes to the cross, God puts all the sin of his people on the sun. And he hangs on the tree with Billions of sins imputed to him under the dominion and power of sin, under the wrath of God, under the fierce attack of principalities and powers. Um, Everything is against the son on the cross. And as the son takes the wrath of God and atones for the sins of his people, it's as if those sins are washed off of him and he's sanctified. That's that's the ultimate sanctification of Christ. He's sanctified as he pays for those sins and they're washed away in his blood. In a sense, Jesus is cleansed by taking the wrath, dying, and then rising and bringing about the new creation. So that everything he does through his life leading up to that, as Paul says, he obeyed even unto the point of death, Even the death of the cross, the sinless one, the spotless lamb, is treated as if he's the most filthy sinner because of your sin and my sin. But then those sins are washed away, the power of sin's broken, and in union with him, we are now sanctified in him and have become, as Murray says, 
partakers with him in all those triumphal achievements that he accomplished. Um, There's a lot more that we could talk about with this. Uh, I would just encourage you to be looking at Romans 6, 1 through 11. I would um, just have you turn over to another passage that we talked about briefly last night in 1 Corinthians 6. And this sort of bolsters what has just been said and what is said in Romans 6 and then 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31. But notice uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. There the Apostle Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's pretty much everybody. That's what Paul's saying. He's not saying, these people, boo, you, hooray. He's not saying that. So don't, don't just highlight homosexuality and say, boo, hooray me. I mean, we've broken all of God's law in thought, word, and deed. My best friend said to me yesterday or the day before, he said, you know, I'm pretty confident I've sinned against God more in a day than I've been sinned against in any given relationship the entire time I've been in that friendship with that person. Um, and the apostle is saying, look, such were some of you. Now, Yes, he is highlighting certain sins, such for some of you, but all of us, right? There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who does good, right? The whole world lies under the sway of the evil one. We're all dead in sins and trespasses by nature. And then notice what Paul says to these believers. He gives that warning, don't be deceived. And then he says, but you were washed. You were sanctified. Notice that you were sanctified. You were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Now, Paul is telling us to think properly about ourselves. We have to think properly about what has already happened to us. Um, It's always sad when you see in real life people who get amnesia and they can't remember anything about their life. Or someone gets Alzheimer's or dementia, and it devastates um, family members because they have to watch somebody they love not know where they are or who they are or what they're doing. And, um, and, And knowing who you are is such an important element of being a person in this world. And the apostle is saying, know who you are in Christ. Um. It is so much of the Christian life. So much of it is just knowing who we are in Christ. Because if I remember that, then I want to live in union with Christ and in communion with him. And I want to do things that are pleasing to him. And I want to be conformed more and more to his image. And I'm grieved when I sin against him. And I want to grow in holiness. But that doesn't put me in union with Jesus. Right. When Paul addresses the church, he calls believers what? Saints. Right. He doesn't say sainthood is is a category that's reserved for select, really holy people. Every Christian's a saint. 
You are a holy one, right? Paul says, he addresses the church, first words out of his mouth, to the saints, to the holy ones. How are you saints already? Because you're sanctified in Christ. You've been sanctified. He's, he's, already, he's already set you apart by breaking the dominion of sin, bringing you into his kingdom, giving you his spirit, and enabling you now to grow in holiness. Um, I think the more that we get this, the more we will make strides in areas of our life where we want to make strides. And the less we get this and the more we think, well, it's just all up to me, and we get in that sort of um, never enough quagmire again, right? Just beating ourselves up, failing, beating yourself up, beating yourself up, beating yourself up, just trying to do it, trying to pull yourself along. Um, We do that. We all do that. But when I get this, and I remember what Christ has done for me already, that then fuels my desire to do what's pleasing to him. Um, No, I think that's why Romans 6.11 is so important. He says, therefore, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. Now, here's an application. Maybe you struggle with anger. The next time you feel an outburst of wrath, you can say, you know, I am not a slave to outburst of wrath. Or whatever the sin is, greed, pride, lust, um, laziness, whatever. I am not a slave to whatever the sin is that I often feel controls me, and I am not to be mastered by it. It's not, it's not self-help. It's, it's, it's the appropriation of a real truth and the powers at the cross. You know, I had a professor in seminary. He used to say, and I always love this, it's so simple. We go back to the cross to go forward in holiness. We go back to the cross for pardon and power. So if I want to go forward in holiness, I don't move away from the cross. I go back to the cross in Christ crucified. Because I go there for the forgiveness of my sins, which I need every day of my life. And I go there for the power I need to go forward. Um, you know, I sometimes think, and I'll leave you with this thought, I sometimes think we get bored with the gospel. What I mean by that is I, I look at what floods my social media feed day in and day out, what's on the news, what people are talking about, and I almost hear nothing about Jesus Christ crucified. And I'm like, that's not good. Like in Christian circles, when when... When you go on a five-year rant about whatever, and it's not about Jesus Christ crucified, the center of gravity is is missing. This is it in Christianity. Um, we never, you never, um, you never get over your need for Christ crucified. Never grow. You never outgrow that. You're never going to get to a place where you plateau. And you don't need the blood of Jesus anymore or the power of sin broken in the death of Jesus anymore or the power of newness in the resurrection of Jesus anymore or the continual intercession of Jesus right now anymore. 
what we call the unfinished work of Christ, right? The finished work, the cross, the resurrection, the unfinished work, the intercession, ever living to make intercession for us so that he's going to bring many sons to glory. Um, I just want to encourage you to go back to the cross and to get this dimension of it. You know, the cross is so multifaceted. There's so many sides to the cross. But I hope that you'll be encouraged by this. Any questions or comments about definitive sanctification or anything that was said? What actually does the word definitive Yes, that's a great question. Definitive is the once for all decisive breach with sin in the death of Jesus on the cross. I shouldn't mention that. So definitive, right? When we think of progressive sanctification, we think of ongoing. When we talk about definitive, we mean a once-for-all act, a decisive act, in which in the death of Jesus, the dominion of sin is broken at that one moment forever for all those for whom he died. Is that helpful? Thank you for asking that. That was a good question. Other questions or comments? Comment that's interesting that Paul goes on to talk about. However, I still continue to do the things that I know I shouldn't do, and I want to not do it, but I do them anyway. Yeah, it's that ongoing. It's We still have, the confession says, the remnants of sin. It, it oftentimes feels a lot more than a remnant. If we're honest, if I'm honest, it feels a lot more than a remnant. But we still have that law at war within us, right? The flesh and the spirit. Even though Christ has already brought us into a new world and, and has been risen by the power of the spirit, and we have the Holy Spirit, and we live in the new age in Christ, We've been liberated. Nevertheless, we're still carrying around the, the old man. And, and I don't know how that works. I will tell you this. That's one of the most difficult subjects in theology, and I've wrestled with this for a decade. I'm not exactly sure how that works because Paul says the old man was crucified, and yet we can live in the flesh, and we can put on the old man, and we're supposed to be putting off and putting on, and, and you know we're feeling that warfare and that tension. So it's... Um, it's one of those difficult things. It's good. Thank you. Some people in church history, I will just say this for your own knowledge of this, because not everybody agrees with how I package that exactly. And I think some of the Puritans would have assumed aspects of what we just talked about into justification and some into adoption. It was there. It's all there. It's really, I think, when people say, well, the Westminster Standards and the Reformed Creeds and Confessions don't talk about definitive sanctification, therefore it's not biblical. Well, it is biblical. I mean, we just looked at Romans 6. That's biblical. I hope what I taught was accurate. But how that's packaged in church history is sometimes packaged a little differently. But getting the essence of it, whatever we call it, seems pretty straightforward in the Bible to me. So, Yes? It does make sense that there is such a thing as definitive sanctification, 
how does that? Could you explain a little more on that justification as a one-time act and sanctification as a process? Yeah, so justification is monergistic, and it's a once-for-all act, legal act, right? So justification is law court. You're guilty. You need to be vindicated in the law court of God. In the death of Jesus, the great exchange that happens, once-for-all, legal act. It's not transformative. It does encourage holiness when we know I'm accepted and righteous, but there's no part of justification that's transformative. It is only legal, and it's a once-for-all act. Sanctification, our Westminster standards talk about as an ongoing work of God. And so the question is, well, and I'm sure Dr. Duncan will talk about this this morning in that Philippians 2 passage. How does that work together, what God's doing, what we do in that, right? We sometimes call that synergy. It's synergistic. But I actually think what we talked about this morning makes sanctification at its beginning monergistic. It's something God did in Christ, a once-for-all act to break the power of sin, to enable us to grow in holiness, so that you could say sanctification begins monergistically and continues synergistically. I don't know if that makes sense. So that the beginning of it is all and only what God has done in Christ. The continuance of it then is my working out what he works in. I think what some people did in church history was they took elements of this and they said the radical breach of the power maybe belonged into justification and then knowing that I was a member of Christ's kingdom as a son and a child was part of adoption. I'm not really quite sure what they did with all this. Would you say that justification and definitive sanctification happen simultaneously at the same time? Yeah, I think regeneration, obviously, regeneration is the first thing, the new birth, which is really the beginning of sanctification also, right? The renewal of the nature. But then we're still ungodly because we still have a record of unrighteousness. So then as we believe in Jesus in time and space, those benefits come to us. And it's not, you know, theologians are going to differ on how we package all that in what we call the order of salvation, the application. But I do think justification, adoption and definitive sanctification all occur simultaneously. And then the rest is really progressive sanctification. So in the application. Dick, how do you think of this in relationship to the already but not yet? Yeah. I think God enables us to experience enough of the liberating power that Christ has fully and perfectly purchased for us on the cross in this life to make us long for the full application of it. You know, we sing in the hymn, we'll be saved to sin no more. I mean, when we think about heaven, is that our hope? Not just being with other believers, but I'm going to be saved to sin no more. And and I think the fact that we've tasted enough of the liberation from sin in this life, while we still have that struggle going on, makes us long for the full realization of it in the hereafter. So that's a good, good question. All right, so let me pray for us. Thanks for asking so many good questions. Let me pray.